didn't. Damn it. I didn't even mm. play, actually. <laughs> I got blocked in, and I was like, well, I guess I can't leave. He sends a message, I'm going to build us a recording studio. <laughs> oh, if that'd lot, be nice. If I won the, won the lot. <clears throat> yeah. Oh, okay. I requested for a bar to be can in I, the recording studio somewhere. Can you turn down my headphone just a little bit? You bet. That's a little too loud for me. It's three. Oh, it's going to get yeah, worse. Like, that's better. That's better? Yeah. It's going to get worse. <clears throat> I'm going to let you do this. Um, nice. I think you should go ahead and start recording in case you need to start. Oh, good job. It's red. <laughs> <laughs> Glad you were thinking about that, Bill. That's okay. Um, I think... Um, I think it'd be good to why is fix your mic? my mic. Yeah, why yeah. is your mic pointing at, at your, your chest? Yeah. <laughs> I have eyes. He's supposed to play games. <laughs> All right. Okay. Um, what I was thinking was we talk uh, on the introduction to Bob. Uh, we just kind of give some general background, or do you want to go deep to what I was? I want him to at least tell a little bit of his story that he was telling me. Which because one? there's so many stories. I know, but I mean, he's like the world's most interesting man. Yeah, he, I agree. This I is Bob. That. He is definitely. Nice. No, and it is. so, yeah. And there was the surprise at the party. Um, yeah, at the party that. <coughs> excuse me. You didn't know about, and yeah. you've I've I've known him for a few years, but you've known him quite well, and you still didn't know that. So. Yeah, there was uh, there's all kinds of stuff. I'm sure it seems like uh, every time we take a vacation and Bob tells a story, <laughs> you're like, "Damn, I, I never heard that." Didn't know that one. Um, yeah, so um, we we want we have Bob on today. Um, we'll leave it at that. Uh, Bob is a family member, and uh, like I like what Bill just said. He's the most interesting man in the world. Like legit, <laughs> done a lot of things. You need to cut that. No, 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 no. That's the best part. The best part is that you don't feel comfortable with it. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Um, so I've known Bob for 30-plus years now, and uh, Bob's got a great background. We'll let him go through that a little bit. Um, done so much. Uh, loves his family fiercely. Loves his community fiercely. Very, very, very active in his community in all kinds of ways. Um, I I think for me, one of the one of the bigger places was uh, when you were involved with the CASA, and CASA is a court-appointed uh, special, special advocate. advocate for children, and um, just a tough situation. But Bob, uh, just again, one of those selfless acts where he just digs in and does everything he can to help. Um, so Bob's and, told us a lot of stories over the years. He's we've hiked with Bob. That's uh, right, my, Bill and, yeah. my first time on the Appalachian Trail. But Bob's not a firefighter. No. But Bob has been around the fire service through you for quite a while. Yeah. I mean, hearing, so that's... Yeah. And that's we, why he's on the podcast right yeah. now. Well, he's got a unique skill set. Uh, Bob, Bob, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Like, um, okay. <clears throat> I don't even know where you start because it literally... The stories I hear started probably somewhere when you were eight or nine years old. Oh, no, no. <laughs> not going to go back that far. <laughs> well, basically, um, I was in college mechanical engineering at uh, University of Missouri, and I dropped out to earn some money and got drafted, ended up being a helicopter pilot, went to Vietnam as a helicopter pilot, <clears throat> excuse me, came back. There were really no aviation jobs, so I worked uh, as an electrician in a die-casting factory for a while, then as a maintenance supervisor for Ralston Purina. Then I finally got a flying job for a company that did computer process control for steel mills. 
And then one day uh, a guy walked in there, you know, a young fellow and uh, said, uh, Hey, I'm, you know, John Smith here and I'm here to repossess the airplane. So I was out of a job. <laughs> so I went across the river to Rock Island Arsenal, which is the head of the army chemical command. And um, I ended up working for them hauling um, special cargo. And uh, <clears throat> in order to get a promotion, there was an opening in Atlanta that was in Iowa at uh, any rate, I came down here and bid on a job, which amounted to the chief instructor for the uh, Force Com Army Detachment and Colin Powell's pilot. So I did that for a number of years and then uh, went to work for Midway Airlines. And then when Midway Airlines went out of business, I uh, ended up at the FAA for 20 years as an FAA inspector and did a lot of flying on the side. Um, but it was uh, really a great job. I did accident investigation. You do everything as a general aviation inspector from parachute jumps to ag spraying and, um, uh, of course, accident investigation. So, and a lot of training. And then I retired from the FAA about seven or eight years ago. And we opened up a company called V1 Rotate. And uh, myself and my partner, we do uh, training centers for the folks that drop the water on forest fires. So... I have no firefighting experience at all other than the fact that <laughs> you're around uh, it all, all the time. <laughs> yeah. Other than from the aerial point of the view, you know, which is uh, aerial spraying. And, um, so at any rate, that's kind of my background. And, uh, so I appreciate being asked to come and talk. I put together some kind of random thoughts, but, uh, we'll see where well, it goes. We've well, talked about you, this for a while. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've wanted to have Bob on since I think we hiked on the trail. Yeah. Because we were talking about, and and I definitely want to get to this, but I'm going to go back to something else first. But we went, we talked about uh, purposeful noncompliance. Yeah. But you you kind of went over something that just kind of blew me away at the party, which was <laughs> in your background. You were Colin Powell's personal pilot, and I mentioned Colin Powell all the time on this podcast. <laughs> I mean, I, I just I, I I've read. Books and I, I really, I really like the way he did leadership. And uh, how many years were you? I was down there for four years, four years, four and a half years, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that was the uh, the um, army headquarters for uh, all of the continental United States was down at Fort McPherson. Okay. Um, one yeah. of the I don't want to. There's going to be so much of this I right know, here, but there was one thing that uh, kind of blew me away when Bob started. Uh, when he started getting involved in the uh, the the tankers, the air mm -hmm. tankers, right, and dropping the retardant and all, and he was, we were talking about it, and I was just blown away. And one of the things, and correct me if I'm wrong, one of the things that kind of shocked me was it was the part of the industry that didn't have flight simulators, right? That's correct. So that means those guys have got to do this OJT live, and is quite problematic. Mm, just recently in November, I. W Craig and I worked with two companies last year, and the culmination of it was to go over to Milan, Italy for 30 days because that is the world's only seaplane simulator over there. We did the Scooper airplane, the CL-415. It's a Canadair product, and um, it scoops 14,000 pounds of water in 10 seconds. And so it's, a, it's an amazing thing, and the simulator's amazing, and the fact that you can, it's a touchscreen, you can, you know, Use your finger to put a forest fire on the side of a hill. You can set the winds to blow the winds over the hill or down the hill or across the hill. 
and then the guys can scoop out of the lake nearby and then come over and put the fire out. It's it's really fantastic. So oh, why Italy? Uh, I mean, we we've yeah, got enough fire here. Oh, no, but absolutely, I mean, we do, and uh, I, that's going to happen pretty soon, I think. But uh, the Greeks and the Italians and the French have a ton of these airplanes over there, mm. and um, all of the mountains and the Greek mountains and everything. There's a lot of forest fires there, so. That was where um, the first simulator went in, but they're going to do a 415 simulator probably in Canada, I would guess, but maybe in the U.S. Either way, it'll be on our certificate. So one of the things, um, and I'm, I don't know anything about flying, um, but I can imagine you're, you're flying this airplane going towards this forest fire, and you're dealing with some pretty severe updrafts. Yes. Because there's just this tremendous amount of energy that's being released. Right. So imagine fighting this plane over that. So you're, you're right. fighting this, this <clears throat> tremendous updraft, and now all of a sudden you dump the majority of the contents, and you immediately cause the weight of the plane to decrease so rapidly that it even – shoots up even further and the stressors i'd never thought about that not only does it shoot up but the nose pitches up severely so you have to be just full forward yoke you know you're full power already but full forward yoke and uh trying to keep the thing from stalling because if you just let it do what it's naturally going to do it's going to come up and stall so it's a very hazardous thing and and here's the other issue that the simulator does such a great job on when you're doing OJT in the live airplane and you're coming down with especially retardant, which normally the retardant goes down on the sides of the fire and then the water tankers do the center of the fire. So the retardant has specific things on the drum that, you know, this needs to be dropped for dispersion at 500 feet or whatever, 300 feet. Okay. Well, that's hard to tell. It's hard to do with a new pilot and it's very dangerous when you're live, you know. So you can bring the guy down and you can let him make a pass and you can look at the EIOS, the instructor operations uh, uh, board, and you can see, no, he, he did 300 feet. Hold on just a second. I'll back you up. Let's go down and look at what the site picture looks like at 500 feet. I want some muscle memory here for you right. to understand how this really looks, you know. And you can do that over and over again and get him to understand what that site picture looks like and what the climb out's going to look like. So it's a very, very valuable thing. It's going to save these guys about a million and a half dollars a year in training costs alone. So how, I mean, how prevalent are accidents in this <laughs> line of work? Well, they're prevalent for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's an extremely hazardous environment that they're flying in. There's two things that airplane accidents um, that are on the high list of airplane accidents. One is called CFIT, which is control flight into terrain which is a perfectly good airplane that flies into the side of a hill right. for whatever reason, maybe the weather, et cetera, um, and wind shear, all right? And wind shear, as Shane mentioned, is a big thing. Right. And wind shear is sort of a peripheral training area, and CFIT is sort of a peripheral training area for the airlines, but it's a major event for these guys. So we've got some very severe wind shear profiles that are put in the right. and uh, the combination of the wind shear profiles and the massive changes in the uh, longitudinal pitch and the weight changes, you know, to lose 14,000 pounds in five seconds. Um, so that, that all makes for some very interesting training and, and good learning. So you've got special planes yep. that are unlike any other planes in the world. No, this one is. This well, is purpose-built, but the big tankers like the DC-10s, BA-146s, those are old airliners. Right, right. But I mean, converted. this in all of aviation, this is a very, very 
special group. Oh yeah. Right? Oh yeah. So you've got you've got special planes. Yeah. And it sounds like you've got special pilots. Yes. How do the normal pilots become this kind of a pilot? They, they never what started special? out being normal. <laughs> well, that's that's kind of where I was going. What kind of person yeah. ends up saying, you know what, I like flying. But I really think I'd like to crank it up a notch. Yeah, I really think I'd like to fly over fire. Most of these guys are bush pilots that come from Alaska. They're taking people out to fishing camps. They're going in and out of tight areas. So is it just experience? Or, I mean, are they like cowboys and and wildcats? That's what I'm thinking. That is a major issue. That is a major issue. So not not a benefit. Necessarily, right? right. <laughs> but well, yeah, an issue. Many of maybe them, a benefit. Well, though. I mean, yeah, you do need somebody yeah, that's willing to. Those, we've to established you can't yeah. teach courage. Oh. Yeah, and there's a there's a when you think about the way the Air Force trains. All right, there's a definite split between the fighter community and between the tanker or okay. cargo community. And one is a single pilot operation. You know, you're out right. there and you're F-15, you're all by yourself. The other is flying a KC-135 tanker or, or a C-130. That is a crude airplane. A crude environment is a totally different environment, thought-wise, right. than somebody out there hot-dogging around by himself. So there, okay. there's a big conversion there because a lot of these guys are flying like a twin otter on floats or something. So they've been flying by themselves, making the decisions, go, no, go decisions by themselves for years. Right. All of a sudden now they're in a crude environment. Not right. only are they in a crude environment, but they are in a massive operation with water tankers going down the middle, these tankers going down the sides. Are you saying they have a hard time getting along with others? I mean, is, don't they have play a difficult well. time in the sandbox. Some well, do not play well with others. Well, if That's you think about sure. it, I mean, the risk benefit is a whole lot different. If it's just one individual, the risk is just to me, yeah, or, right. to the plane, versus yeah. a crude and you're doing a whole operation, it, the risk is a lot more catastrophic. Right. So. Plus, you don't want to run into the other airplanes. Right, right, right. Are are the ones that you're wow. talking about, I've, I've watched a couple of videos, you know, on YouTube. And I've seen always. Be, that should be enough. Yeah. <laughs> you got it. And I've You've seen the movie it. always, right? It's got to be exactly yeah. like it. That's it. <laughs> Uh, but the ones that I were was watching uh, had little spotter aircrafts flying yes, in front exactly. of them as well. Exactly. Which just, I mean, how many aircraft are you going to clog? In a small know, go, area. Yeah. There yeah. could be half a dozen aircraft of different sizes and different speeds uh, operating in the same AO. Wow. And you said there's accidents pretty regularly? I, I wouldn't say regularly, but... Um, it, there is an accident rate. Some of it is caused by stress and fatigue of the airplanes because mm-hmm. literally uh, they had a DC-10 not too long ago. They pulled the wings right off of it because they were doing 3G pullouts and they shouldn't have been. So there have been some stress and fatigue. And what happened to that crew? Oh, they all died. Um, <laughs> Sorry. I was yeah. not the laughing <laughs> yeah, point. I, I knew exactly right. where that was. Maybe it was the way he <laughs> yeah, said it. Yeah, it was the delivery. Yeah. It wasn't um, the, yeah. But... So there is some of that, and, and there's also some mid-airs, and uh, there is some, the Italians had a very unfortunate accident just about the time we went over there, about a week before we went over to Italy, and they uh, got into a valley and just couldn't make the climb out of the valley after they released the, and that was in a CL-415 in a tanker airplane, and you could just see they were struggling, couldn't make it out, hit the top of the hill. When you said see, what do you, you've got video of it? You've got... Yeah, I got a video of it. Wow. It's nasty. I bet. I mean, it's like what so, we were watching before. Right. You know? So, I mean, are you doing, are you involved in accident review? I haven't been involved in accident review uh, because normally I'm not a government employee anymore. Um, I would do, we do uh, 
you know, court, um, yeah, like expert witness, expert witness okay. stuff. Um, but, uh, conceivably we could be, I guess, but I'm, you know, I'm not a CL-415 pilot, so I wouldn't be the best one to be in there. Right. Now I could look at structurally, I could look at the management system and see what maybe led up to the accident in terms of peripheral items. Right. So, so back to the DC 10 yeah, with the wings that came off. I mean, you said they knew they shouldn't be doing it. Right. And they did it anyway. Yeah. Why? Well, they could have gotten themselves in a situation where they needed all 3G, you know, a 3G pullout to miss the hill in front of them. Right. Um, it's just a very hazardous uh, uh, environment that they fly in. It, or it could have been just hot dogging around, you know. Well, and that's where... Um, you know, we've talked about before, and this was really the thing that kind of piqued um, my interest, the idea of the, and I'm not saying that's what happened in this one because, it, yeah. it, it, you know, you don't know, but the whole like, the whole concept of purposeful noncompliance, when we heard you talk about that, when, yeah. when Shane and I were hiking and we, we were talking about that, that whole concept is, we think, is very, very applicable to the uh, to the fire service. Yes. You know, because we've got these things that we know we're not supposed to do, or even buildings and situations that we say, we're not going to do that, you know? Uh, and then something happens, and for whatever reason, you end up going back on... You do uh, it. Yeah, you do it. And yeah. I'm not, you know, obviously, uh, you know, it's a it's involving... Uh, people and, and life and things like that, that can change a decision. But the ones that I'm thinking of weren't even, weren't that, uh, there wasn't, there wasn't that, it was something smaller that made somebody change uh, change their mind. Yeah. And I mean, I, I don't want to derail the conversation, but in um, Charleston with Sofa Superstore, you know, it was a, uh, it was a building that um, a friend of mine, a firefighter went and talked to, talked to some of those guys after the fire and they said, yeah, we knew that building was dangerous. Um, so is it the fact that when they pulled up, they, it was a, it was a pile of trash that was on fire. Is that the piece that you go, Oh, well, this is different. And now I'm going to do what I said I wasn't going to do. Sure. And you end up with, with, um, well, a bad result. Let's think about it this way. Uh, all of us have uh, in proximity to our house a 25 mile an hour zone somewhere. If you look at the speed limit that everybody go or the speed that everybody goes travels at, you're going to find that quite a few of the people are above 25 miles an hour. Sure. So what's the reason for that? Well, if you interview them at the end of the 25 zone, you're going to find out. Um, I just keep up with the traffic. Um, I was in a hurry. I had to get somewhere in a hurry. Um, I think it's a ridiculous speed limit. It ought to be 40 miles an hour. There's nothing right. else around. It's not a school zone. I could go on and on with that. But noncompliance is kind of a dem endemic in the human population. So you have to fight that constantly. It's not something that is an anomaly to just dangerous things. So, you know, you can have um, unintentional noncompliance from like, a, I've listed a couple of things here, lack of knowledge, inadequate training, a memory lapse, lack of practice, um, misapplication of a procedure or a, a stress, distraction, that kind of thing. And you can have deliberate noncompliance, uh, op trying to optimize your operation, uh, saving time or effort, saving resources. I've got a better way to do it. Um, a 
a workaround being uh, SOP doesn't work. You right. know, sometimes management creates an SOP that just doesn't work because they never ask the line folks, hey, is this operating? Right. No, hell no, right. we don't do that. Okay, because- we can stop right there. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I want to go back through that list. Can we go back through that list sure. one at a time? Sure. And what I'd, what I'd like to, to hear is uh, try and tie this into behaviors that we've seen in the fire service. So sure. What's the, no, you can just read them off. What's the, what's the first one? Lack uh, of knowledge? Yeah, lack oh, of well, knowledge. That one's, that one's an easy one. I, I went to a training exercise on Friday where some of our folks didn't know how to operate some gear that they were being issued. They, they had, well, no, they had been issued it a long time yeah, ago. A couple yeah. of years. In the training, they were supposed to use the gear, and it was very clear they didn't know how to do it. So that's, that's your lack of knowledge. Yeah, that's kind of the header there. And that can involve inadequate training, memory lapse, lack of practice, et cetera. Okay, so those three, I got you, those three fall under that that subject. So, yeah, yeah, inadequate training, memory lapse, lack of, so that was lack of practice. Yeah. Memory lapse, we just don't do it enough. So you've got the equipment on the truck, but you don't touch it enough. Right. And then inadequate training is just that nobody ever really showed you how or why. But I put that back on firefighters as well, though, to a certain degree. If you got it on the truck and you don't know what it is or you don't know how to use it, you ought to be asking a question. Uh, this is the culture, though, I think. Well, I think, it is. I but think that that, a lot of times you have to have that, that officer or whatever that creates that environment for you to do that. But I think the rookies create that environment when we send them out, too, because the rookie is this perfect opportunity to go, hey, what's this? And everybody else has to go, you know yeah, what? Yeah, but the thing is, is that's not typically what happens because that rookie is doing everything they can to, fit to assimilate to yeah. that. I get it, but I, and you so don't they're think not going to pick those. Hey, I, you I'm still new. I don't know anything. You I'm still think, new. I don't know anything. <laughs> you don't think the rookies going out is a little bit of a jolt for the station to kind of? It kinda, should be, and I think for some it probably is. Yeah. I think it. Does. I think it does for some, but not not all. No, I'm not. You know me. Uh-huh. I'm never going to say. Well, no, we're not about absolutes. <laughs> all right, I'm going to ask a question. Uh, forcible entry, I'd say, in the last 15, 20 years, has really become a bigger thing. Yeah. In your beginning of your careers, was it something that was taught and trained on? Oh, no. Exten- uh-uh. Exactly. No. It's something we carried on the truck. It's something we did, but not until the last 15, 20 years did they really start hitting it hard with the, the gapping and all that kind of right. thing. These were simple was... tools that we carried on the truck. But, I, you know, I had this conversation with a firefighter one time. He was like, you, you guys, you know, used to force doors all the time. I'm like, we kicked them. We kicked them. Yeah. We, no, didn't, we, we, we didn't do the techniques kicked, that you guys are giving me no, talk about. We kicked now. all the time. Yeah. Right. Front donkey, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> right. So that's a, an inadequate training, you know, for that right. same kind of thing. It's like we had the tools, we knew what they were supposed to, but it was more fun to kick them. So we kicked them. I, I do want to kind of put something together and I, I know Bill's going to cringe when I go here. Oh, this is going to be awesome. I know. Uh, Cause I we haven't wait. had a chance like to up. really talk about it, but Pabell shared an article with us a few weeks ago, probably a few months ago. Remember the three U's? The unwilling, unable, oh, yeah, I've seen and this unaware. Uh, I don't think he shared it with me, but uh, I've seen it, this before. It was. It came from. Um, gosh, I can't remember the chief's name. Uh, I'm not even going to try to mess. I'll met Vince. Vince. I got it from Sobieski. Uh, I, I anyway, the purposeful nine. When as soon as I started to hear about the three U's, and the purpose of it was this. It was a guiding tool for um, new officers or whatever to kind of gauge what. This Why are they happened, having the right? issue? This this non-compliance event took mm-hmm. place, and let's start to figure out why. So it goes through the unwilling, unable, unaware. And that kind of gets into the purposeful non-compliance, even though the, what we talked about years ago about the purposeful non-compliance, I keyed on not the un, 
able or the unaware, it's it the was unwilling. the unwilling. Yeah. And that was the individuals right. we were pinpointing at that time. I remember this person vividly. Right. Um, and and I remember, I just remember this conversation took place at the beach. I'm almost positive it's where yeah. we started it. Um, I, I shared it with Bill and, it, and we, you know, that whole, un, that purposeful noncompliance, whether it's I know better than you, the policy's not written correctly. It, I, it won't happen to me. Uh, all those those kind of things. Right. And I think for the fire service, to me, they're all dangerous. You know, uh, when I say uh, these uh, unfortunate, unintended events that take place, but when you get, you need to kind of peel it back to how we got there. Like, is was it truly an unwilling piece, or was right. it like unaware? I can deal with a little bit better you know what i mean sort of i'm trying to take a very broad strokes here um unable you should know that before so we shouldn't have gotten ourselves but that that true unwilling individual is the one to me that is probably the most dangerous Mm -hmm. uh in in the emergency and on the fire ground really i agree Um, so well between um you know once you get through the non-compliance because of unintentional or deliberate you can go on to the to the last bucket there which is cultural and that is which i think is one of the most dangerous is the normalization of deviance oh we always do that you know we always work around that particular thing <laughs> it works um, right up until it doesn't right yeah and what we say you don't get to pick when it doesn't that's yeah. right and the emulating superiors if you have a training captain or something on the line uh and he's doing that shows you how to make an approach you know and whether that you shouldn't be doing it in um, and again, uh, pardon my ignorance of the firefighting business here, but I'm just going to relate this to aviation or inadequate oversight. You know, people are just not watching what's going on. Who's right. supposed to be uh, do- managing the scene or the flight or the? Oh, fire. we suffer from those three very. Uh, yeah. pers- I mean, in my opinion, significantly, especially yeah. that first one, that normalization of deviance, and that sounds very aggressive. No, no, that's, but I think that's, that's, that's that bad behavior. I, and I think that's our whole just, discussion on luck. Yeah. Where we we got lucky on the it, previous time, and it reinforces the trying. It goes into it our last mental time. Rolodex of well, last time I had this. This is what I did, and it came out okay. And therefore, let's do that again. So well, it's calling it normalization of deviance is a little bit more um, clinical. Yeah, no, but I mean, and it's there's a little bit more about uh, an edge to it. That's a negative. Yeah. Okay. But there is what's called heuristics. I don't know if you're familiar with heuristics, but that's a it's a shortcut that we in the in the um, you know high tech uh, kind of dangerous business that we're in, firefighting or aviation, um, use because we have experience and we have training and we can take these shortcuts. We don't need to go down every possibility right. to make a decision. You know, you have the observation. You do the analysis and you do an action. Sometimes it's that fast, you know. Sometimes it isn't. Sometimes you have a lot of things that go on. But I'll just give you an example of heuristics. Guy takes off in his Cessna 172 at night. He's flying, going somewhere. It's no big particular deal. He doesn't need to be there at any time. He looks down about 10 minutes in the flight. He sees the fuel gauge is at zero. Oh, crap. Well, what's the problem here? Did the line guys forget to fuel this thing? I told them I didn't check the tanks, but it, they right. should have fueled it. Or is it a bad fuel gauge? Do we have an electrical failure of the fuel gauge? Well, there's no pressing thing, so he decides to land at the nearest airport and check it out. Sure enough, it's a bad fuel gauge. Okay. 
a year and a half later, he takes off and he's going across the water out to Martha's Vineyard or something at night. And uh, he looks down about 15 minutes in the flight and sees the fuel gauge is at zero. Well, heuristics is going to lead him to think, right. boy, there's a, first of all, I got a very important business meeting. I have to be at, at eight o'clock tonight. And he's going to think, you know, there's a, there's a possibility that this thing is a right. bad fuel gauge. So, and again, you got to look at the, at the context of it. Are you going over water? Are you at night? Are you over a lit area? Is there good moonlight where you might be able to land on a road if you actually do run out of fuel? So all of those things are going into this fairly complex decision-making model. But heuristics leads into it because he had that experience, and that's in his memory bank. Right. Well, no, I think it's <laughs> there's so many, there's so many uh, examples that I can think of from my past falls right into that. As far as the three uh, items that, you know, you were focusing in on, Shane, this may be... We got handouts. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, so the objective to try it's, to get around expected. these things is is a culture where everyone does the right thing when no one's looking. That's the ideal. Um, and procedural compliance universally recognized as a sign of professionalism. When you get those combinations there... You're, you're on a good road to trying to get a handle can on you, this stuff. Can you say that again? Uh, a culture in which everyone does the right thing whether nobody's looking. And then procedural compliance is universally recognized as an element of professionalism. So, man. That last one's good. I like up all of it's good. <laughs> I, I think from a leadership standpoint, you know, I've, I find myself in a, a very unique situation where I'm no longer necessarily supporting leadership. I am trying to, I am the leadership where I'm trying to create something in an organization. And those that hit me a little bit right there, you know, because right. you start thinking about that first one about, you know, that culturally creating, doing the right thing when no one's looking, how do you, and not that that's not happening now, but how do you, what's the, what's the process look like to make that happen? or to support right. that. And I, I have to believe that has to start um, at the top and at the bottom. At the top, you know, as far as establishing uh, examples or um, what we've often said, um, you know, what you tolerate is kind of what you get. Right. So there's a level well, of... I think that's an important point. If I had to do this over again, I would put these backwards. I would put the first one first, or the second one first, that the procedural compliance is a element of professionalism once you ingrain that in the folks that you're dealing with then the culture becomes they're going to do the right and thing. and i agree with that and the the reason i think that's important is because in my head that's the foundational piece this is what procedures say we do we agree with it and if there are procedures in place that we don't agree with or we do not think are correct then we should make the steps to fix those procedures rewrite yeah. them resubmit whatever not just don't do it because right. we, that we know that's wrong. And do you have the feedback loop to get that information? Right. You, I think you have to create that environment. Yes. I, and I think um, I feel like it's, golly, I'm going to say this. I'm probably going to totally regret it. <laughs> I love the buildup he does for these things. <laughs> it's awesome. I think I'm in an environment where that should be easier because it's smaller. Okay. Now that there, there's that's fraught with you oh, know you issues totally in there. Yeah, I probably will, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, I, I think it's easier to kind of create those feedback loops or create that contact 
uh, very ca- casual contact too, which I think is important um, in that smaller organization rather than a thousand members where the I, feedback I, loop requires so many I agree. levels that's got to travel through. Yep. And then the interpretations start to enter into that and the biases start to enter into that. And are you truly getting the feedback you thought you were going to get? Plus I, you have a I cultural agree. history in a, in a big organization like that a lot longer than the one you, you're in right now. I agree, but you, you're also, you get faster feedback, you get uh, more honest feedback, maybe, whatever those benefits are of a smaller organization, but you're also potentially getting less feedback. Larger sample gives you larger, if it's yeah, truly more data scaled, that. Right. right? So there, there is a, there is a downside to that smaller organization and that feedback. You're shaking hatches oh, for, for all that's of just our pessimists in you coming out. Oh, that's what? This is the pessimist in you I coming got, out. I got oh, nervous a second. I just want you to know. I look up and he's shaking his head. No, I thought, oh shit. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm just bagging on this. This ought to be good. <laughs> no, no. no I, I, I actually agree. A, um, I know it's rare. No, <laughs> but it's sweet when you do. I know. <laughs> makes um, us all feel yeah, warm. Yeah, makes us all feel good. Um, you said something, Bill, that um, we're going to get back to Bob because this is about Bob and not me. Um, but the speed at which feedback comes is yeah. something that's taken me off a little bit. Like it's like, well, ooh, and like I, it's right in your face. So yeah. I wanted and, to and ask you. And it comes at a way that you need to fix it now. Right. Not let's work through right, the right. process. Yeah, let's, let's do a focus group on this. No. So, no, no, do it now. <laughs> right now. So I wanted to ask you, and I actually want to ask Bob about this, but you know, you and I have talked a lot after reading the book on uh, Boyd, Stephen Boyd, about the OODA loop. OODA loop, yep. No, no, no. And the whole point of that OODA loop is the speed that you can get through the OODA loop, which it sounds like you're talking about you're going through the OODA loop faster. Than I feel comfortable with. Well, faster than you're used to. Yeah. You mean John Boyd? John, yeah, yeah. Oh, it was, was it John Boyd? Oh, Stephen Boyd was Thanks, in Bob. Ben-Hur. Appreciate that. Stephen, Bur- Stephen Boyd was in well Ben-Hur, uh, <laughs> and he played Masala. Ben-Hur's but, always there for you. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. I know. Wrong Boyd. Yeah, Oodle. Boyd. John Boyd. Observe. I read the book too. Did observe, you? Yes. Orient, oh, decide, act. Yes. Right? Or do, do I have observe and orient backwards? I think no, it's observe, observe orient, orient, decide, decide act. And, and then you go back, back and to, forth. Just yeah. that constant little loop. And right. we do that uh, just firefighters. We don't even think about it. Yeah. It just happens so fast. We're all right. doing it that's all the time. Situational awareness. Yeah, all the time. And some of it is shortcutted by your experience. Right. Which starts to get into the heuristics piece, which right. can be problematic. It can be. Because it's exactly what you said. But it I've also gets into the luck always. piece. It gets into the luck piece right. because if it has a favorable outcome, we're going to shortcut it and we're going to kind of go with that. Right. Instead yeah. of looking at it, yeah. actually orienting it like you should and taking out all the information, God, you take out parts point. of the information. That's such a good point because that's the individual that is using, they're, they're, they're leaning more towards the luck. It's always worked out for me. Yeah. Or experiences versus education. You know, like you went to a class on this, but this always worked this way. So why do I need to do what they said in the class when I've had good experiences this right. way? Yeah. It's the, well, this is what they taught me and here's how we do it in the real world. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Which we've all said. Yeah. Now that you've done with recruit class, let's show you how we really do it. Well, <laughs> it that just came up. It's funny Jill said that. And we've, we've had whole episodes devoted to us deviating from established policies, pers- yeah. yeah, policies and procedures. That's the whole. I know, and yeah. I, 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 the whole. You know where I stand on this. I think. Go ahead with it. Well, no, no. I mean, I don't even know what we're talking about right now. <laughs> we're being kind of vague. The last time we dipped our toe in the breaking policies 
thing. It didn't go well, and we didn't put the episode out. Oh, so stop here. Right. I mean, I'm not. I'm not trying to derail us there, but that that is purposeful noncompliance, and I have done it before. Yeah. But I think there there was also a component, and Bob, get in here when you can. Uh, Golly, that's probably should. There was there was a, and I hate to put it this way, but it was an accepted risk. I knew what I thought might happen if this doesn't work out, and I still did it anyway. And this was a, you know, do, having an action, going to do something, and there was clear policy that says you do not do that. But so, there, at some point, well, so let's take the DC ten. You said there's a possibility that they got into something that they weren't anticipating, and they had to make the plane take yeah. the three Gs. And I'm just, I have no idea, but let's just say there was a crew on the ground in trouble and they were the only plane anywhere near. Yeah. That's purposeful noncompliance, but they knew what they were doing right? going into it. For right? a purpose. And they were willing to take Except the consequences. The yeah. Right. Yeah. That's true, but what is the policy? The policy is basically that you leave yourself enough margin to climb out of that valley. Right. <clears throat> So, um, there, there may, there may be another airplane on scene that can do a better job than you can do, can get in closer than you can get in, or maybe a helicopter can get in closer than you can get in. So that needs to be in the formula when you're working in these multiple, um, element, right. Emergency kind of things. Uh, you know, you don't take the biggest airplane you have and send it into the tightest valley that you have. So. I, I bet, though, Bob, and we'll push back on you a little bit yeah. here. Uh, out of complete respect, though. Yeah. <laughs> I can feel it. Um, <laughs> I would be willing to bet that in your your flight time during Vietnam, you had to make decisions oh, oh, yeah. that were well outside of policy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we're going to stop it there. This interview was so jam-packed with concepts and revelations and consequently ended up being so long, we had to break it into three parts. So be sure to check out our next episode where we'll pick back up where we left off. Combustible is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Amazon, and everywhere else you listen to podcasts. Subscribe to Combustible to make sure you don't miss out on an episode. Follow us on Facebook so we know how many of you listeners there are out there. And you can check us out online at combustiblethepodcast.com. As always, we would like to thank the Golden Dogs and True North Records for letting us use their song Saints at the Gates for our theme music. You can find the Golden Dogs music on any streaming platform. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you later. Later.